Any, any prayer requests? Your uncle passed away. Well, last week he did. Say his name again. Robert. Robert. Yeah. I hope it was a good passing. I mean, you know, we don't have any control over this. One of the things I'm looking forward to this. Um, Dante will be a centerpiece for this work. I hope everybody. I hope everybody knows. I admire you all greatly for doing this. I've said that before. And, and I meant it. Dante will be a center point. He, he, will, he will bring to a kind of pitch the literature of the pagan world and the height of a Christian Catholic culture. Shakespeare's right there. We started with him. We'll pick up with him again, but we'll do Homer, Virgil. And, and then before we do Shakespeare, there's a, um, a philosopher named Boethius. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. But his work, Constellation, Boethius wrote, he was probably the most, no, he was the most important Catholic philosopher between Augustine and St. Thomas. And he's got this little book called Constellation of Philosophy, and I, I think it's one of the most important books of the Middle Ages. It stands with Augustine's Confessions and St. Thomas's Summa. It's very simple to read. Uh, uh, um, Boethius is in jail awaiting his uh, execution. He's been falsely accused of treason. I, have I told you this before? I mean, and the book opens with him whining and crying. I, th I thought I told him. Anyway, he's whining because he's being unfairly treated. And this towering figure um, dressed in um, a, a draped piece of clothing that looks tattered and aged. It's Lady Philosophy. She comes to him in a moment of need and speaks to his grief. And what she tells him is, she said, the, the reason you're grieving too much is because you read too much poetry and literature. <laughs> so, and she said, the problem with you is you've forgotten your, your roots. And what, what happens then is she begins to take him back to his beginnings and in order to get to his end. And his beginning is his end. Elliot will use that line when come back. But in the course of his argument, the, the discussion that goes on between the two of them, Boethius will arrive at this statement. And I absolutely believe it. I absolutely believe it. 20 years ago when Suzanne and I were in the East Coast teaching, a priest had said to her in one of her meetings with him, um, there were some crises going on at the school where I was teaching. And uh, he said, uh, always be thankful, no matter what. Always be thankful. That's hard to do when you're in the middle of a cross. You know, there's some agony going on in your life. You're losing somebody. But he said, always be thankful. And in the Mass, it says, always and everywhere, be thankful. That's in the Mass. Boethius' words were, um, there is no fortune that is not good. Now, I, I, I don't want to get into this right now, but I'm saying that. I mean, I've got your uncle on my mind. Um, it's a complicated argument. It, it, actually, it's simple and complicated, but it, it's not hard to follow. It's amazing, but it, it's, it's, it's so impressive. Um, what he's saying, basically, is if our God is a God of good and he allows evil, it's the Job story, because Boethi will say to him, if our God is good, why does he allow evil in the world? Why would a good God allow evil? How can you 
square that. And Lady Philosophy will bring it to a point where he will acknowledge this is a God of love and, and make the point, if this God of ours is a God of love, there is nothing happening that he isn't bringing some good out of. The question is, do we have the faith to see that? When things get really hard, do we fall apart? Or do we do it, or is that an occasion for growing in our faith? So, sorry, Connie, but I just, I mean, I, well, I know, I mean, when you lose somebody you love, you're, it's a sad time, but just with that background, hold on to that, because that's what our church asks of. The world doesn't understand that very well. And it's hard for us often, when things get tough for us, particularly in our families, it's, whole, it's so hard to be glad. But with that, with that note, let me, so any other prayers tonight? Hold on to that. Truly, please, hold on to it. it when Father first said that at Suzanne, I'd never heard anybody say that before. It, it went against everything in my being. I was ready to fight <laughs> when there was some difficulty you know, going on. Um, it's, it's a completely way, different way of looking at things. So. Good. Say your name again, please, sir. Michelle. Michelle, his name? Bill. Bill. Bless you for asking. Truly. Okay. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life, for your presence with us. You're not always visible. The whole point of this work we're doing together in these works is to learn to see you and to know that you're there, even though you're not visible, physically present. You are in the Eucharist daily, um, strengthen us so that um, between times, whatever's going on, whatever we do, uh, we do aware that you are at work trying to bring some good. Help us to stand with you there, particularly where there are crosses. And we ask a blessing on Robert on his passing um, and on those who love him, Connie and the rest of the family. Forgive him his sins. If there is a purgatory, let him undertake it in joy. Um, he's past the dark things. Whatever work there is, is a work to be done in joy. He's headed to you. And if not, he will know the joy of being with you. Um, whatever the case, um, let his heart be glad. Let our prayers um, speed him, um, help him on his way, um, and quiet the hearts of those um, who have lost him here. And sorry, Michelle. And Bill. And Bill. Ask a special blessing on Michelle and Bill uh, this weekend. Um, marriages are not easy today. Marriages are not easy. Um, there's so much about a world that in, constantly encourages to have what we want. Um, our church calls us to give up everything, to renounce it. Um, there's never been a country in the existence of our world that's been so productive, um, so good at answering desires. It makes uh, genuine love harder. There's so much more to give up. Watch over Michelle and Bill this weekend. Let both of them open to you and um, to find in this break from their day-to-day -day routines a grace uh, 
uh, to know a joy, to be grateful for the life that they have together, and to, to know, to know. Whatever the struggles, um, there's a grace in them because in our struggles we come to see ourselves more truly as we are, um, hopefully to be more grateful. Um, there are times, when I'm speaking personally now, when I'm amazed that Susanna's <laughs> suffered whatever I brought to the marriage, and I think she feels that way about me, but um, we endure a lot in our marriages. Help the two of them be grateful to see that there's been a grace to help them to grow closer to you, to find a joy in this weekend, and a hope. Um, and I ask um, for your blessing on the work that we're doing here. Help us not to leave this in our heads. Help us to take what we're learning to the world. Um, to help bring you to what we do, particularly where you're not wanted and not seen. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, I want to. I want to try to do this quickly. I'm not going to be able to do it quickly. You all have the Marina phone. We did that. Didn't we do that last week? Didn't we do that last week? The Marina phone. Is TSL about the daughter, the girl? Wow, nobody's showing any recognition. What did we do last week? Didn't we do Marina? Did we do the two epic poems? The week before that, did we do Marina? Here, let me ask, I want to get clear in this. Have we not done this poem together? Marina, Marina. Tita, Sally. Oh, okay. Then you've got a surprise and I've got to do something with my memory it's getting worse and worse Suzanne's got copies no wow wow we did it in in the two St. Francis Monday Friday classes and I thought we'd done it here but While Suzanne's passing those out, let me, can I have your attention? Leave the phone for a second. I want you guys to get this background because it's so important. I think I've spoken about Elliot before. T.S. Eliot wrote a poem called The, the Love Song of Geoffrey Prufrock. And it was unlike any other poem that had been written before. It's a little bit like Browning's work because it's a personal monologue. It's Prufrock inviting the reader, us, to take this journey with him. Um, if you read it closely and you've read Dante, and I don't know, I mean, I can't assume anybody here has, Eliot would have assumed it, he'd read Dante. Um, you'll, you'll discover that Prufrock's inviting us on a, on a journey that will be infernal. It, it's gonna be a, a journey into hell. There's nothing, no flames, no fire. It's not Dante's Inferno, it's Prufrock, it's sort of aesthete, a lover of art, Culture. Doug, can you, sorry, are you coming out? Can you, yeah, okay. He says, um, come with me on this journey. And the, the epigraph, the rubric, the, the quote before the poem is taken from Dante's Inferno. 
And you'll come to see, we'll do it, you'll come to see that the proof rocks in a world and doesn't realize he doesn't know that he doesn't know. Which is the condition of hell. You'll see it when we get to Dante. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of shake, shaking poem. Um, several years after that, 1922, he wrote and published the, the poem called The Wasteland, which lots of people take as the mark of modernity because it's showing the sterility of the modern world, the modern city. It's our world. Intellectuals were taken by it because they'd not heard. It's clear that he was the poetic voice of our age, that he was saying things that people felt but couldn't, hadn't put into words before. So they could identify with what he was doing. But like good poets, he's making us aware of bad things in ourselves that we don't want to see. And as he moved through his career, he became more hopeful, and he ended his career writing um, the Four Quartets, which I think are the most extraordinary poems of the 20th century. I, I hope we'll get a chance to do them together. But at this point, um, he's writing in the 1920s, just after Prufrock and just before The Wasteland, and just before his conversion. He made his conversion somewhere, if I remember, around 1930. And, and he wrote in commemoration of that event, one of his most important poems called Ash Wednesday. I don't want to do it even here on Ash Wednesday because I just think it's too difficult. But, but as soon as people recognized that he had converted Christianity, all the intellectuals turned their backs on him and hated him because he, he represented to them the cynical, the nastiness, you know, the modern world. Um, and then he converted. Uh, shortly just shortly before that conversion, he wrote um, Murder in the Cathedral, which is what we're doing in St. Francis right now. It's an extraordinary thing. But during that period, in the 1920s, he wrote a group of poems on explicitly Christian themes. It's during that period where he's, he's undergoing a change. Two of them we've got here. One of them is Marina, and the other one is Simeon. You all know who Simeon is, right? Who's, who's anybody? Lori, did, did you say yes? Who's Simeon? Simeon is. Oh, that's a little bit. The, the one who's in the temple that uh, when Jesus came to be presented in the Good temple, people, right. that he had been promised that he would not die until he had seen the salvation. Right. God, you're scaring me more and more. <laughs> I think, did everybody get it? Yeah, I think it was back to the Here's the background of Marina, and it's really important to hear this, okay? During that period, a couple of British critics were reading Shakespeare and um, publishing books that showed a quality to Shakespeare's plays that critics had not seen before. It's amazing to me that they could have missed it, but um, one of them was G. Wilson Knight, and in his works, he's showing this transcendent quality what Shakespeare's doing, because if you know, in the Enlightenment period, that's the last thing people saw. He saw it, and he was a beautiful writer, and he, had, um, he, he just did some extraordinary work. Eliot had read him, and it, it, it put him, took him back to Shakespeare, and it made him read Shakespeare with new eyes, okay? Two plays are of particular importance for this poem, Marina. In one called Winter's Tale, I, 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 hope we, I think it's his greatest play. In Winter's Tale, um, it, it, 
it, it has two major figures, kings, uh, Leontes, who's the king of Sicily, and Polixenes, his dearest friend. Polixenes has come for a visit. They haven't seen each other since they were boys, and he stays for nine months. During that period, Leontes' wife, Hermione, gets pregnant. Nine months pass, the play opens when um, Polixenes is taking leave of his friend, Leontes the king, and he's going to go back to his kingdom in Bohemia. He's the king of Bohemia. Leontes is watching a couple in a corner, and he is immediately overcome with jealousy. It's the Othello play. We've already done that together. And you know that Othello, Othello's jealousy is so great that he kills his wife. We've, we've seen that. The, I believe Winter's Tale is a greater play because Leontes is not goaded on by anything. That comes from inside himself. So the responsibility rests with him. He looks at the couple and he's convinced that his wife has betrayed him. He asks his lord Camilla to kill Polixenes, his dearest friend. Polixenes goes to, I mean, uh, Camilla goes to Polixenes and says, flee. Leontes has been caught in a fit of jealousy. They flee. And what it does is convince Leontes that he's right. He puts his wife in the tower. She's pregnant. Okay. Um, he sends um, an embassy off to the oracle at Apollo to confirm, because everybody's saying, you're mistaken, you're wrong, your wife is faithful, and he's saying, she's not. Sends the oracle, um, Hermione has the child, the maidservant, Hermione's maidservant, Paulina, notice the name, Paulina. She brings the child to the king and says, this is your daughter. She even has your face. Leontes is horror-stricken and says, get her out of here. He tells one of his lords, Antigonus, who is Paulina's husband, to take the babe and abandon it, trusting that it will die. Uh, so he's giving it up, giving his daughter for murder. The oracle comes back, and the oracle says, I, I should write the words, um, Leontes is a tyrant, he's mistaken, there's a couple of other lines, and then says, uh, Hermione's guiltless, um, Leontes is a tyrant, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Now that's stunning, okay, because what happens in that moment is um, a messenger comes to him and says that your son has died. The son died from a broken heart because his mother's been in the tower. By the way, keep Henry VIII in your mind in all of this. This is a king making accusations, putting his wife in the tower. The son dies from grief. When Hermione, the wife, hears that, Paulina comes back and says, the, king, the queen's dead. Okay? That marks the first half of the play, and it's the Othello tragedy. The wife is gone, the daughter's been sent off to death, the son is dead, there's no heir. And the oracle says, he will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Um, the play shifts from Sicily to Polixenes' kingdom, and there, it just so happens that the gods led the servant to take the daughter there and drop her off in the island. He will die, the ship will die, all the crew. But the, the young woman will grow up. Her name is Perdita. Perdita, that which is lost. She grows up, 16 years elapse, and because of a quarrel between the young prince and his father, um, Perdita and the prince flee because they want to marry each other, and they go back to Sicily. By that time, the king is reconciled with Polixenes, and he's grateful for what happens. So, 16 years later, the daughter is brought back. He didn't even know she was alive. 
So you can imagine the shock of a father to discover the woman. First time I watched it, I wept. Imagine the, the feelings a father would have in thinking that his daughter was dead, and she turns up 16 years later. She's this beautiful creature. Um, when that happens, Paulina, who was the one who announced the death of the wife, tells the king to come to her chapel because she wants to show him a, a statue of his wife. She takes him into a statue. It's a liturgical setting. It's holy, it's quiet, it's about faith. Paulina says, um, awake your faith. Those who think this is unlawful, depart. So she's saying everything that's going on is in accord with reason and law, but to proceed requires an act of faith. The king approaches this statue and he looks at it and he says, he thinks it breathes. Think the paint looks moist. Because even though it's a statue, it has all the appearances of life. It's about the way, it's about the way in which we get drawn into a world of art that we believe is completely visible. I hope that's happening to you guys when we read Othello or Merchant of Venice or even something as violent as Julia. He approaches her and he reaches out his hand and she reaches out her hand. And the two embrace. And you can imagine, to me, it's the most complete paradisal moment that I have ever seen. Even I think it surpasses Dante and everything that Dante does in the Paradiso. A husband and wife are reconciled, and the daughter's there. So daughter and father are reconciled, and husband and wife, after 16 years of no life together, he didn't know she was alive. It's an extraordinary moment. But the point is, that's, that the, what's at the heart of that play is a reconciliation, a rebirth, coming to life again, a winner's tale, and a death, and the life that comes from it. Okay? That's winner's tale. I think it's his greatest play. Pericles has the same theme. It, those two plays belong to the latter plays, what are usually called romance. That's just not adequate. They're, they're sacramental. They're truly sacramental. They have to do with something sacred at work where men are doing evil things. Um, in Pericles, Pericles comes to this kingdom with the intention of marrying. He faces a danger and has to flee. He can't go to his home because the king of the of the daughter that he intended to marry will threaten him. So he has to leave his home, puts somebody in charge of it, and spends the rest, great part of his life at sea, visiting these regimes. So Shakespeare's showing us the nature of regimes, but Pericles is in flight. In, in his journey to escape, he loses his wife, she dies, and he buries her at sea. She was pregnant. Um, something happens to help her survive, and she ends up in a holy place, gives birth to the child, and the child grows up. It's a daughter. Her name is Marina. This, this poem. Um, I can't remember how many years elapsed, but he, he is in a, one of these regimes and uh, suddenly finds himself in the presence of this young woman, and they discover that they're father and daughter. So it's another moment of a reconciliation, a regeneration, a rebirth, a rebirth. And he discovers that his wife is alive, and it's another paradisal moment. I think what Shakespeare's doing is showing us that a paradise, it just goes beyond Dante. That whatever we lose in this world, whatever losses we suffer, are going to be returned, what's the word? Amplified. 
Um, remember the transfiguration, where it's clear that what will happen in the next world will be beyond description. The glory of it will be so great. So here's another instance of a father being united with his daughter. When that moment occurs, this is what happens. And it, it, no other character in literature experiences what Pericles does. In that moment, he goes to sleep and he hears the music of the spheres. And if that's not familiar with it, it's this. It came from Plato and it was picked up by the Christians. It was, it, it's in Dante. When Dante goes into the heavens, he will hear the music of the spheres. You can't hear it in your mortal body because our mortal bodies are mortal, they're wounded. You, it can only be intellected. It can be grasped, and the, only the mystics, because they're the only ones who sufficiently renounce the world to get clear of it, to experience this. But the music of the spheres is this. Every planet in its orbit has a particular note with the order of angels that watches over, because every planet has an order of angels um, um, watching it, superintending it. So each one has its own note, and all together they produce this music. Imagine being in heaven. No, let me put it. Imagine coming from this moment right now and suddenly finding yourself in the next minute in heaven. Could any of you imagine having that moment and not feeling absolutely overwhelmed? Because whatever deficiencies there are in our world were overcome and answered with something beyond our imagining. Okay? So at that moment when he rests, he hears the music of the spheres. So you can, it invites him into an experience of being one with God's music, his beauty, his order. If you've enjoyed a, um, a Bach piece, say, or some piece of music, imagine that amplified, intensified, enriched a thousandfold. That's what you feel like. No other person in all of literature that I know of experiences it, but that's a part of what he experiences, okay? So hold on to that in this poem, okay? Now, take a look at the poem. The opening lines give a sense that there was something there, some place, some grace that the, that the person, the speaker, is aware of, but um, he's, it, it's not immediately a part of him right now, okay? So imagine, imagine St. Paul. You, know, you all know that St. Paul had that vision of the third heaven. Imagine Paul having that vision and then returning to the world. Would he have seen everybody in the world the same way he did afterwards, after having that vision? He wouldn't. He'd carry something to that vision in him, and he would feel that he was somewhere be between this world and the other while he was carrying on his work here. Okay? So... The action of this poem is an expression of a conversion, a changing, a leaving something behind and moving towards something else, but still being present in the world. Is that clear? It's absolutely crucial to get that. This is called an in-between state, aware that you're going somewhere. Okay? Doctor, remind me of the Eucharist when I'm done with this because I don't want to forget it. Or somebody to remind me of the Eucharist. So it opens with these lines reflecting something he can't grasp. He, there's a hands on death and he returns to okay. Now remember, um, this is a father and a daughter. Um, whatever this vision is taken to this place, he's aware of it and recalling 
um, this moment um, with this daughter. Empiricles, it leads to the music of the spheres. Now hold on for one second before I read the poem. In the play Pericles, when Pericles meets his daughter, these are among the words he speaks. He looks at her and says, in startlement, Thou that begettest him, that, de, that did thee beget. Thou that begettest him that did thee beget. He's looking at her as if she begets him, if she brings him back to life, the person that who begot her, who gave her life. Because this is a moment, it's a conversion moment, it's a renewal, it's like he's been reborn because she takes him to an experience that he never expected to have. That which was lost was found. It's with him. Is that clear? So, and this is, this is absolutely crucial to understand right now. If any of us has ever been close to that, Shakespeare takes it to a pitch unlike any, any I don't know of any other poet who's, who's done what he does. If you're in the middle of that moment, you know that it's a shocking moment because um, you're aware that there's something more that's strange. You're, it's not familiar to you, you're not, you're not in heaven. And something familiar, so it's this, bringing together this fusion of something strange and familiar that constitutes this place that I'm trying to describe. And if any of you had moments like this, you know how unsettling they are. Because to move into that world that you're being drawn to means giving up everything that's comfortable to you. So something you looks towards it with some dread. It's a little bit frightening. I remember the conversion, I remember distinctly thinking about because I grew up Greek Orthodox, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Christian world. But if, if you know anything about Greek Orthodoxy, it's centered in its ethos, its Greekness, its tribal, its ethnic, completely ethnic. To give up that world to go into Catholicism means giving up everything. Your race, your family, your traditions. And standing on the threshold of, of Catholicism was like, this is the metaphor I use when Susanna used to talk about, it was like there was nothing on the other side of that wall. I didn't know that world. It was an absolutely strange world to me. Um, so I know lots of us have had moments like that where you have to make a decision and you know that you don't know something. So you're facing something strange. It's a little bit frightening. Um, it means reorienting the way you stand with everything that's familiar. Okay? Is everybody okay? That's where we are in this poem. Okay, it's going to be very difficult to read. Hold on to this because it's just not an easy poem to read, okay? It's about this in-between state where you're aware of something new, something strange, while at the same time you carry with you something from me. I can even put it better like that. Can you imagine going to heaven and not seeing everything transform beyond your imagining and not finding something familiar? Right? If Mary and I ever get past our whining and get to heaven, is there any way we'll recognize each other? I mean, in some sense, I'm, I'm assuming she will just have this glorified, radiant beauty I'm in heaven, but she'll be Mary. And there'll be no doubts about it. Yeah, me or any of us will get there. 
So hold on to that, okay? It's that sort of thing, okay? Because this is not an easy problem. And it's going to get us to something in the Iliad here shortly. Marina, by T.S. Eliot. The epigraph in Latin is, this is so important, from a play by Seneca, the Roman poet, on Hercules' um, madness. In that play, Hercules wakes up from his sleep to discover he has killed his children and his wife. Okay? Pericles wakes up from his sleep, having just heard the music of the spheres, and he's reunited with his daughter and wife. So Shakespeare is asking us to hold on to two things that are absolutely contrary and antithetical to each other, yeah? Here's a piece of literature in which a man wakes up and discovers to his horror his children are dead, his wife is dead. And in Pericles, he wakes up having experienced this extraordinary glory, okay? What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands, what water lapping abound. Remember, he's on a journey, he's on a ship, um, in between, and remember sea, I think I've said the sea is always an image of grace. It's that which can't be controlled, it's dangerous, it's not our home, it's where our life is at risk, but it's an image of grace for all those reasons, because grace can be a danger, because we so often misuse it. We don't work with it well. What water lapping the bank, and pines and the wood fresh singing through the fall, what images return, oh my daughter. Those who sharpen the tooth of the dog, meaning death. Those who glitter with the glory of the hummingbird, meaning death. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, meaning death. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning death. Those are four images of death, infernal. Sharpen the tooth of the dog, violence, meaning death, violence. Those who glitter with the glory of the um, self-congratulation. Huh? Yeah, exactly. The, the way we um, um, ornament ourselves to call attention to ourselves, let's say, look at me, um, what I've achieved, the, you know, the things I surround myself. Vanity is really good. Those who sit in the sty of contentment, that is, the self-complacency, you know, from self-sufficiently, look how good I am, I can sit back and rest on my laurels. Those who suffer the ecstasy of the animals, meaning that, that is, those who live in their passions and sensations. So he gives us four different ways of turning against whatever this new way is, this way that he's experiencing, um, this in-between state. So there are four different ways of denying the tooth of the dog, the glory of the hummingbird, the contentment, the ecstasy of the man, that is living in our sensations and passions. All of those are become insubstantial, reduced by a wind, a breath of pine, and the wood song fog, by this grace dissolved in place, by this grace that permeates his sense of things now. What is this face less clear and clear? Imagine your daughter, if you're a father or a mother with a son, seeing something very familiar and yet so clear and not as clear. You can't see this child blood the same way. What is this face less clear and clear? The pulse in the arm less strong, 
and stronger, given or lent, were distant in stars and near in the eye, whispers and small laughter between leaves and hurrying feet under sleep where all the wives meet. Remember these two worlds. You remember, picture a little girl running in the leaves and picture her later where all the waters meet. Bowsprit cracked with ice and paint cracked with heat. I made this, I have forgotten and remember. The rigging weak and the canvas rotten between one June and another September made this unknowing, half-conscious, un, half unknown my own. The garbled straight leaks, the seams neat cocking. This form, this face, this life, living to live in a world of time beyond me. Let me resign my life for this life, watching the daughter moving to another kind of dimension through this place and himself. Living to live in a world of time beyond me, let me resign my life for this life, my speech for that unspoken. The awakened lips parted to hope the new ships. What seas, what shores, what granite islands towards my timbers and wood thrush calling through the fog, my daughter. Tia Elliott said, a poem today cannot be easy, it has to be hard. Post-Christian age, he's writing to a non-Christian audience. The greater part of the intellectual world is not Christian. So he's trying to write in a language to help recover a sense of mystery. Because, and you know the danger. If you get too literal about it, you lose the sense of mystery. He's got to find a way of presenting the world as it is and still in a way that allows us to experience something beyond that just can't be literally represented. Okay, but to, to try to put this, we'll do Simeon next week. Before I leave this, um, I want to ask this question because it helps put this in perspective. When, when you take the Eucharist, where are you? I know that's going to sound stupid, but take it seriously for a second. When you take the Eucharist, where are you? Okay? You take the Eucharist and you go out in the parking lot towards your car and there you are. Yeah? Where are you? And I'm saying this really seriously. If anybody of us takes the Eucharist in faith and we believe because Christ is in us, we're in his kingdom then. So when you go out to the parking lot ready to get in the car, where are you? T.S. Eliot's four quartets are full of this in my beginning, in my end, England, now and everywhere. I mean, he's constantly putting two places together, here and nowhere. When you're in the parking lot and you've just taken the Eucharist, where are you? saying it really seriously. Is it going to be different for each person, but can, is it enough to say, I'm on the way to my car? If you've just taken Christ in you, where are you? Where do you stand in that mystery? You know, like the father looking at this girl. Are you all following? Suzanne once, I don't know who she met, but she met or told the story of somebody who, who said, who was a, um, a Muslim, I think, who was talking to a Catholic who told him about um, the Eucharist said he believed it was real present. And the Muslim said, are you kidding? If you really believe that, there's no way you could do anything but prostrate yourself as you went up there. I mean, it was disbelief for him because he, the, the idea that you would have your God in you and you would be approaching him is something so beyond even their belief. 
So when we take the Eucharist, if we believe that's the real present, and I, the, the stats on this are extraordinary. I think 40% of the Catholic Church in America no longer believes. 20%. What is it? It's, um, it's like 75% no longer believe yeah. in the real presence yeah. of the Eucharist. Are you all following the question that I'm asking? That is, how many of us go through our daily activities aware that we're partly in the presence of a mystery and living it? And glad to. You know, how much is what we do determined by an effort to control it? And I'm not saying we shouldn't control it because we're supposed to. But how many of us exercise whatever control we do have with some sense that we're in a mystery? And remember, we did this in um, Anthony Cleopatra. I talked about the apophatic, the things we know by their absence. You know, we know and don't know. How many of us live our lives like that? So here's Marina. Read it, you know, take it home and read it yourselves. And it's not an easy poem, but it, it, it's about being in this world aware of moving to another and finding help for it in the way that you see somebody who's partly of that world. Um, Michelle. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you and Bill? Yeah. Bill and Michelle. You, Talk with your husband about that on your retreat this weekend. <laughs> Sorry, about this in-between place where, tell him about it. Okay, okay, um, we'll start. Um, oh, oh, here, I meant to read this. This is too good to read it, Sorry. In that moment, when Pericles is aware that he's looking at his daughter um, and the sheer joy, the overwhelming joy, and yet something of the dread, he says this in that moment, give me a gash, put me to present pain, lest this great sea of joys rushing upon me or bear the shores of my mortality and drown me with their sweetness. Somebody cut me to wake me up because it's almost, one of the problems with us is, is not that we're so often ashamed of ourselves, I think often we are, it's that, it's that we, I think we're afraid of being better, you know, standing in God's grace. That's a burden, it means being happy, being glad. Uh, he's saying, give me a gash, um, unless this joy overwhelm me, drown me with its sweetness. Okay, let's do the Iliad and get back to bodies being cut up and eyes coming out of spear points. What? Eyes falling out. Yes, <laughs> falling out nothing, they're jabbed out. Okay, um, maybe the question that I want to keep before us is what was God doing? Remember I said that in the gods in the Iliad we have what we can call the Imago Dei. Okay, this is so important. What was God doing? The fact that Homer represents multiple gods, I think, puts Christians off. I'm sorry that that happens. Because in one sense, we're getting glimpses of aspects of God. Okay, But the important thing to remember here is we're getting glimpses of aspects of God. 
but they're being filtered through two cultures. And each culture looks at the divine differently. And it's absolutely crucial to keep that up. How does the East perceive God? How, how do they look at him, the, the various images? How does the West? The crucial image, or the crucial concern of this, this work, remember, is something is emerging in the West that's peculiar to the West. And it's going to look forward to Christ. <coughs> what is it? Homer's a pagan. He's not a Christian. But there's so many things that he does that anticipates Christ. So we can learn to see Christ um, in ways that are not familiar to us because somebody happened to see him before he came. And there's a value in that. It can teach us that he may be here in ways we don't see. Okay? So this question is fundamental. I want to keep it alive. Do we learn something from reading the Iliad about Christ? The theme of reading I went over, remember I talked about how poorly men read um, Agamemnon, Diomedes, um, the trote or the, um, the Greek sacrifice to the gods assuming they're going to be answered and they're not. Polydamus reads the bird sign, completely misreads it. Hector misreads a lot. Um, the only one who seems to see things as they are is the poet. And he stands outside the action. He's showing us something that none of the men in that world can see. Does, does Achilles see? Will, it's, too, it's too early to answer it, but there's a giveaway. Okay? Does a, will Achilles see the full meaning of this action? Will even he see it? He's the center of it. I don't think so. Diomedes says Agamemnon is going to be the one that's going to get the glory for the destruction of Troy. It won't be. It will be Achilles. How many men will see that? How many men in that world really see the whole of it? Um, the poet. The hero, remember, is the one who heroism in Homer's world means the one who's named. Over and over and over again, we keep getting the description of these men going back to the swarm, back into the swarm of their companions, back into the pack. Um, and in the pack, nobody's named. It's an undifferentiated mass, nameless, yeah? There's no identity. It's only when you step out that you're named. So the heroic code, what Homer's showing us, and it's extraordinary, we talked about this. Nobody in this poem dies who's not named. The ultimate end for all of us is gonna be death. We're all gonna die. Everybody's named, because in that moment, we're no longer undifferentiated. We're, we're not nameless. We're, even in death, in a, you know, um, we're named. Homer honored everybody. The end for every man is to become who he's given to be, whatever that is. And what we learn here is that different people have a different end. I'm going to give this away right now, I'll come back to it, but just to, to, to give a point to that. Um, I'm going to get to this today, it's because where I want to go. Um, when things go bad for the Achaeans and they get to the ships, Hector wants to burn them. And Achilles sends Patroclus to find out who's been wounded and brought back to the ships because all the heroes are wounded, the major heroes are. Patroclus goes and he comes back and then he goes and makes his report to Achilles and, he, and we'll, we're going to read it. Patroclus says, you hard-hearted man. Um, and Nestor has already suggested that Patroclus put, put on Achilles' armor and go into the war because if they see it, they'll be frightened. And he does, and they do. Uh, um, Patroclus is going to put on Achilles' armor He's actually going to push the Trojans all the way back to Troy. Um, we're going to get to that. Hector will kill him, and he'll put on Achilles' armor. 
When he puts on Achilles' armor, he dies. When any man tries to be something he's not, when any of those men try to be Achilles, they die. The whole question is, can, are we grateful, let me put it as, as broadly as I can, are we grateful for the person that God's given us to be, whatever our place in life? Because in this book, we're watching all these people try to be better than they are, to kill somebody. It, it, I've said this before, it's a picture of modern America. Everybody rivaled to everybody else, and now husbands and wives rivals to each other. Is there anybody in our world that isn't a rival to somebody? You've got to step over somebody to keep getting up. That's what this world is, killing again and again and again. But at the end, an interesting thing happens that begins to make this turn in the story. Patroclus goes out, he puts on Achilles' armor, he's killed. Hector wants that armor more than anything because the greatest man in the war is Achilles. For him to wear that armor, he thinks is going to make him a greater man. He puts it on, he's killed. So Homer's showing us something about our identity, um, about being who we've been given to be, um, and watching people constantly try to be something other than who they are. So the hero is the one who steps out, who is named. Okay, and it gives rise to this greatest theme, this theme of Kleos. We can say it's, it's naming honor. And um, we've seen together now that honor in the beginning of the book is um, conferred by booty. Right? Um, the more honor you have, Achilles, Achilles has got a lot. Agamemnon has a lot more. And Agamemnon's not satisfied. He will not give up crises. It starts the war. He takes Briseis from Achilles. Um, it's a degrading moment. Achilles isn't there for himself. Um, so it cracks open the whole problem with the honor code. That, that people think their dignity depends on the material things conferred on them. And we've seen the problem with that. If that's what our honor depends on, if we depend on the society and the money that we earn to determine who we are, it can be taken away. And if that's who we are, we're nothing. We're a fiction of whatever the world makes us. Yeah? Is that clear? Wouldn't you agree? Sort of starting cold shower realization, but it's true. What's your name? Me? Yes. Francesca. Francesca. What grade are you in? Ten. Ten, yeah. You're young, but this is all around you, so just take this with you. Hope it'll be a help. Most of us are carrying years beyond because you're, you've got a lot of this to look forward to. This what we're describing here. Really, um, there's this great struggle in the world. Everybody's killing everybody else, um, and everybody wants to get wealthier. Um, what's the words? In, you know, watch your back, stepping over somebody. You know, all of this stuff. Um, and one last thing, just as a, as a, a quick reminiscent. I, I, I pointed out two passages that yesterday, or last week, that I think are worth holding on to. One of them is the end of Book 8. Book 8 closes with Homer describing nature. There are all these campfires. 
You know, the armies are out there, and the, and the, the night sky is lit up with flames, reflections of the campfire. But nature itself is peaceful. It's a beautiful, serene setting. It, when, the, when the armies stop, things are quiet. And I think it's Homer's way of showing us there is this beauty and serenity to nature, but there's something violent in it. And the second one, the other one was in that scene in the 14th book where uh, Hera seduces Zeus. And remember when they make love, the, the hyacinth and the crocus and the, the other flowers bloom, they spring forth. Um, so there's this eros, this love present in nature. Even, even though we don't see very much of it because the book is concerned with what men do with the world. Okay, tonight I want to look at three things. I want to look at both peoples again. I want to read some passages from Hector and then I want to come back to this, this question of reading, um, but this time in light of this whole that we've been talking about, the whole plot, the whole action, and the turn that takes place, what's going on in this turn, okay? Okay, I want to go back to, now remember, Troy, when it's often in, in, um, in the book, Troy is described as the realm of gold. The realm of gold. It's said over and over and over again that um, there are all these treasures in Troy. They've been gathered. Remember that if you, if, can all of you picture, you know where Troy is? It's on the northwest coast of Turkey, modern Turkey, towards Istanbul. It's a trade center. It's a, it's a, it's a coast trade center. So it's a, it, it opens to um, Greece and Italy and um, Egypt and Africa to the south. So it would, it would be an important trade center. So I think we're supposed to imagine that um, this has been a wealthy city. And when it's under attack, when the Greeks come to attack it, it gathers all of these peoples around it. So, and we'll see that in a second. So I, I'm assuming that it's got Romanians, what today in modern world would be Romanian, Bulgarians, Syrians to the south, and people from Iran and maybe even Iraq. So all these people would be joining because that's their trade. That's the, the trade center by which they go do their trading to everything in the Mediterranean, okay? Um, so Troy is a, is a, is a coast um, trade center. It's a place of power. Hector's place there is not small. And it's, um, the Greeks are laying siege to it. So there are all these treasures at stake. Constantly people are taking booty. People have come in to assist the Trojans. There's people from everywhere. Um, I want to I just remind you of something. Remember that we looked at the opening quarrel. In the opening quarrel, all the Achaeans were fight, fighting with each other. Achilles was challenging his king. He was about to pull his sword and kill him because he had so outraged him by humiliating him the way he did it. Athena comes down and says, hold your anger, you will recover. We, we, will, we will be sure that we'll get your honor back. Um, take a look in book two. I want to just quickly look at this because we didn't cover it before. 
page 181, book 2, about line 185, 185 or so. Remember, Agamemnon just had this false dream. Zeus was testing him. Agamemnon was testing his men, sent them home, said, we're going home. All the men run to the ships. Page 81. Odysseus knows better. And, and notice what he does. This is, I mean, this is why CEOs and, and business leaders and managers should read this book. Whenever he encountered some king or man of influence, he would stand beside him with soft words. This is Odysseus. With soft words, try to restrain him. Excellency, he does not become you to be frightened like any coward. Rather, hold fast and check the rest of the people. You do not yet clearly understand the purpose of Atreides. Okay? Um, go down. When he saw some man of the people who was shouting, he would strike at him with his staff and reprove him also. Excellency, sit still and listen to what others tell you, to those who are better men than you, you skulker and coward. What's the difference between the way he treats the lords, the leaders, and the common people, and why? Remember, I, I, gave, I sort of gave, this is the hero of the next book, and I gave it away. Remember in the catalog of the ship, it showed Aias at one end, and Achilles at the other end. They're the two most powerful men in the Achaean army. And who is in the middle? Odysseus. So why is he doing this? What does it, sh what does it show us about Odysseus and his, the way he looks at men, the way he treats them? Why wouldn't he beat one of the lords? He, he takes, I mean, beats, he strikes him with his staff. Why doesn't he take his staff and beat one of the lords? If you take a guy who's a really noble figure and you tell him to knock it off and you take a stick and beat him, what's he going to do? He's going to fight back. If he's got any nobility, yeah, is he going to just take it? He won't. Watch what he does. Excellent. It does not suit you to be frightened like any coward. Rather, hold. So he's appealing to their sense of honor to get them to stop. Why doesn't he do that with the common person? Why does he strike him? If, if the common person doesn't have that sense of honor or dignity, will an appeal to it be enough? It won't. It won't. So here in the beginning, we're watching um, Odysseus show a kind of prudence in ruling, an awareness of the differences between people, their temperaments. But the giveaway here is, is that they all sit down in an assembly and Thersites speaks up and Homer describes them this way at the bottom of um, page 81. This is book 2 about line 210. Now the rest had sat down and were orderly in their places, but one man, Thersites, of the endless speech still scolded, who knew it in his head many words, but disorderly, vain and without decency, to quarrel with the princes with any word. He will say, um, going over, Next page, middle of the page. My good fools, poor abuses, you women, not men of Achaia. Let's go back home in our ships and leave this man here by himself in Troy to mull his prizes of honor, that he may find out whether or not we others are helping him. Now he's dishonored Achilles, a man much better than he is. He's taking his prize by force and keeps her. But there's no gall in Achilles' heart. He's forgiving. Otherwise, son of um, Atreus, this were your lout. Um, last hour. Now, in a minute, Odysseus is going to stand up and beat him. He's going to knock him and say, knock it off and get out of here. And then we'll go back to the war. What does this say about Thersites? 
No. Go ahead. Yeah, what's he appealing to? Yeah. And it's just, does he, is he, he's appealing to, he wants to get out of the war. And what he, and Homer, Homer said he's a man of many words but disorderly. So he's, he's very articulate, he will make an argument, he will appeal to the truth. The question is, is he appealing to the truth for the right reason? Is his heart where it should be? Is this a noble heart? And he says there's no gall in Achilles' heart, he's forgiving. Otherwise, Senator, does Achilles have no gall in his heart? No, it's not true. Achilles would not have threatened his king if he didn't. I mean, Achilles is really angry right now. The last thing you can say about it is he's forgiven. He's, he's pulled out from the war. So when we look at the Achaeans, remember in the opening quarrel, Achilles took on his king. The men were going to rush off. Achilles, or Odysseus, has to make some serious efforts to get back. And Thersites is appealing um, to every man's wanting to get out of the war because no man wants to die. So he's appealing to the least of them to get out of this war. Odysseus stands up and beats him and they go on. Remember, I want to just go, go back to seven um, and the Trojan Council just for a second. This is book seven. Remember when they had a council and Antonor stood up. This is on page 177. Antonor stands up and says, Paris, give her back. The war will be over. The war's over. Give her back. Who opposed him? Nobody. Paris, who's the son of the king, says, and this is bottom 177, book 7, about 1335, 355. Anthony, these things that you argue please me no longer. Your mind knows how to contrive a saying better than this one. But if in all seriousness this is your true argument, then it's it's the very gods who have ruined the brain within you. I will speak out before the Trojan breaker of horses. I refuse straight out. I will not give back the woman. Now Paris um, steps forward. I mean, sorry, Priam, the king. And um, he says he's not giving them back. Go out and take care of the dead. Bury them. Um, speak with the sons of Atreus, Menelaus, Agamemnon, giving the word of Alexander to Paris for whose sake this strife has arisen, and to add this solid message and ask them if they are willing to stop the sorrow for fighting until we can bury the bodies of the dead. We shall fight again till the divinity chooses between us and gives us victory to one or the other. So if you look at the two worlds, um, one is contentious. There's arguing um, from um, different planes, different levels of ability. If you look at the East, it's quiet. Nobody argues with the king. And it's tribal. It's his son. Um, and he's saying, as if it's noble, let the gods decide between us. So there's no sense of a rational argument, no argument. There's none. I mean, Antenor, Antenor says, give it back, but Paris says, I'm not going to give it back. And that's it. So there are Clear divisions between these two peoples, east and west, okay? Now hold on to that. Um, go back to book three, just from the very beginning of book three. This is when the truce is broken. Remember when Paris and, or, or Paris and Menelaus are going to fight and 
get stopped. It's the very opening, first line, book three. This is Homer describing the two peoples, east and west. Now when the men of both sides were set in order by their leaders, the Trojan came on with clamor and shouting like wildfowl, as when clamor of cranes goes high into the heaven, where the cranes escape the winter time and the rains unceasing clamorously wing their way into the streaming ocean, bringing to the um, Pygmalion men bloodshed and destruction. At daybreak they bring on the baleful battle against them. But the Achaean men went silently, breathing valor, stubbornly minded each in his heart to stand by the others. Now, I, I don't want to look into that, but just hold on to that, okay? Because the, the descriptions are radically different. When he describes the, the Trojans, they're clamorous, they're noisy, they're yelling. And I think it's fair to say they're probably yelling in different languages. Whereas the um, Achaeans are quiet. Um, went silently breathing valor, stubbornly minded each to his heart to stand by the others. There's a kind of sense of unity about what they're to do. So we've got two very different peoples. And we know that both of them look at the gods differently because different gods um, um, represent each people. Okay? Now, um, I want to take a minute and look at some of the passages that have to do with Hector. So bear with me for a minute, okay? I want to put together... Now remember, this is to me is stunning, and, and I, I didn't realize this when I first started teaching and hit me years afterwards. Um, lots of people, lots of modern critics look at Hector as a hero. They think Achilles is a scoundrel. And it's interesting to me how that reading gets reinforced by the beginning. We've already looked at it. Achilles is going to pull his sword out and kill his king. He looks really selfish. He's going to pull out. And the, remember, the, type, the, the opening lines are a thousandfold die. So when he withdraws from that war, thousands of his men are going to die as a result. So, and when we see Hector, you know that he pulls out of the war when Paris goes off to make love to Helena. And Hector goes to get him to get back in the um, battle. And while he's there, he talks to Andromache. And there's that very tender scene between them when um, Andromache says, you are everything to me. You are mother, father, child. Achilles has destroyed all of her family. Now all she's got left is him. And she says, don't go back in the battle. I've read those lines. Before, and he says, I can't do that because if I went back, what would people think of me? Um, um, and he doesn't, want, he doesn't want to face the day of her losing her freedom. That is, he doesn't want to see her captured. And it ends with him taking his son to him, to hug him, and the son squealing because he's looking at the, the grotesque horror of that helmet, the war helmet. So it's a touching scene. It's a, it's a father talking with his wife and the tender scene between a father and a son. So put those next to each other and you come away reinforced in your sense, good and bad, okay? Now remember what I said about the cave, Plato's cave, because it's, it's just, it's gotten clear and clear to me as I've aged how, how much what Plato did came from Homer. Remember that, the poets came first. Um, take a look at, um, let's go through some passages. Book five, line 470. I'm just gonna quickly go through some lines. Aeneas, 
One of the great Trojans has just been wounded. And by the way, who's Aeneas? Does anybody know? The hero of the Aeneid. As you go through this book, pay attention to what said about Aeneas. A- absolutely pay attention to him because the, the, the best reader of Homer that's ever existed was Virgil. Homer's carried over line by line into the Aeneid, and you'll see it when we get there. Um, just pay attention. Aeneas is the founder of Rome. He's the hero of the Aeneid, okay? And he's just been wounded. And Sarpedon, we've already looked at him a couple of times in that exchange between Sarpedon and Glathos. Sarpedon says to Hector at the bottom of 140, where now, Hector, has gone that strength that was yours? Aeneas is wounded. He needs help. Where's Hector? You said once that without companions and without people, you could hold this city alone with only your brothers and the lords of your sisters. I can see not one of these men now. I know not where they are. Oops. Line 470, this is book five. You said once that you didn't need anybody but your brothers and sisters. With them alone, you could defend the city. I can see not one of these now. I don't know where they are. No, but they slip away like hounds who circle the lion, while we who are here as your companions, remember, they're from outlying lands. While we who are here as your companions carry the fighting, I have come a companion to help you from a far place. Lycia lies far away by the whirling waters of Xanthos. There I left behind my own wife, my baby son. There I left my many possessions, which the new man eyes longingly. So he's going, where are you now? What does this line say about Hector? What strikes me at this line is that vanity of family, of trying, of bloodline. Hector says, I don't need anybody about my family. I mean, there's that inordinate pride in a fam- of a bloodline. It's like a family standing by itself, but in an excessive way because he's saying, we don't need anybody else in our family. And yet, Troy is tribal, right? It's a dynastic regime. Priam's the son. Hector's, I mean, the king. Hector's the son, and so is Paris. And when, when they're challenged, he says, go back to war. So tri- or, Troy, Troy at its roots is tribal. The, the family, dynastic. Hector's, the, the lines that Sarpedon's quoting here um, underscore that. Go to book seven, line 216. Hector, a single man against single men, you will learn now for sure that bravest men are alike among the Danans. Even after Achilles, the lion-hearted who breaks men in battle, he lies now apart, it goes on, but here we are. We are such men as can stand up against you. There are plenty of us now, 
So begin your fight in your, um, in your combat. Hector is just fit up to challenge any kind of combat. Aya stands up. And we know that it, um, they fight to a draw. Night comes at the bottom of 175. It's a good thing to give way to the nighttime, and they stop and exchange gifts. But what we know from the scene is Ayas is capable in strength of standing with Hector. Okay? Another interesting fact is over and over again they keep saying, when night comes, just hold on to this. Nighttime in one sense represents what's unknown. They know the gods, but when nighttime comes, they enter a space, a time of unknowing. It's, it's the blackness, the darkness, they don't know. And over and over again, they have to um, stop the, the battles um, when, they, um, when night comes. Book 8, one line, line 124. Middle of the page, 185. Um, he spoke of Nestor, the Geranian horseman obeyed him there on the two strong henchmen, Stenelos, the courtly Eurymedon, but after the horses of Nestor, the others both together mounted the chariot of Diomedes. Nestor in his hands took up the glittering reins, then lashed the horses on. And as he raged straight forward, the son of Tydeus threw at him and missed his man, but struck the charioteer, his henchman. So he misses Hector, but hits his charioteer. Eniopius, the son of high-hearted Thebaeus, striking him in the chest next to the nipple as he gripped the reins. By the way, that's a pretty innocuous description, mostly there's blood and gore everywhere, but not here. Struck him, he fell out of the chariot and fast-footed horses shied away, and there his life and his strength were scattered, and bitter sorrow closed over Hector's heart for his driver. Yet grieving as he did for his friend, he left him to lie there and went on after another bull charioteer. Uh, this is the point at which Zeus holds him, but notice that as soon as his chariot drops, would Aeneas have done that? Would Sarpedon? Achilles, Hector, the other heroes. Um, book 13, line 795. 795. Um, um, in book 13, they're pressing the Greeks back. They're on their heels now, and at the bottom of two, page 292, and Hector led them, Priam's son, a man like the murderous war god, and held the perfect circle of the shield before him, fenced deep in skins. Um, Aias, at the top of the next page, 293, about line 810, Aias was first to take long time to go and challenge him, man, are you mad? I'm closer. Why try this way to terrify the Argives? Is it, it is not that we are so unskilled in fighting, but by the wicked whiplash of Zeus, we Achaeans are beaten. I suppose then your heart is hopeful utterly to break up our ships. Um, he goes on. Um, a few lines down, Hector responds to him. Aias, you inarticulate ox. What is this you've spoken? If I could only be called Son to Zeus of the Aegis all the days of my life, and the Lady Hera and my mother, and I be honored as Apollo and Athena are honored. So surely is this day that brings evil to the Argives. Go, um, 
This is, um, this is the first time he says that, and he will say it again. He will say it twice in the book. If I could only be as um, Athena um, all, and Apollo all the days of my life. What does that say about him? Anything. Yeah, and much greater. He wants to be like a god. I mean, think about the people in this book. Um, he wants to be identified with Athena and Apollo. So there's this longing for something transcendent, beyond. Okay. Um, um, turn to 17, just quickly. I, I, there's so many. You could, by the way, the sheet that I've given you, I've given you a list of scenes involving Hector that you might look at. Um, um, because it's really important to try to put them together to get a sense of who he is. And hold on to this while you do. It's really interesting. Um, this, Christ had to leave the disciples at some time. Watch what they did. Every one of them was martyr. I mean, they lived extraordinary lives. You know, they gave their lives uh, for him. So when he's gone, they step forward and accept a martyrdom. Achilles is out of the war. When he's absent, we get a clear glimpse of all these other people because he's not there. All the Greeks come into focus. We see their heroism, their limits, the great things. And Hector emerges as this great hero once he's out of the war. So just hold on to that because of his Achilles' absence, his being not there. Everybody else um, comes into clear focus. Okay. Um, one last line, and then I want to look at Patroclus before we leave. Book 17, line 140. Now remember, um, up until book 13, Hector was in the ascendancy. Aias picks up a rock and throws it at him, and Hector's wounded, and he's taken out of the war. And it's at that point that Hera seduces Zeus. She wants to get him out of the way because she doesn't want the Achaeans to lose. So while she's seducing him, Poseidon's back in the war, the gods are back in, and the uh, Achaeans regain control of the war. Um, after the seduction, uh, uh, Zeus wakes up and scolds Hera. Hector's healed, and he goes back into the war. From that point on, from the end of 15, and until late in the book, Hector dominates the war, okay, until Patroclus comes into it. But here in book 17, line 140, um, This is where, I'm skipping ahead, I'm sorry to do this, but I have to do it. This is where Hector and Patroclus fight on page, or line 140. Glaucus looks at Hector and says, Hector, this is about line 140, what's 17? 17. Hector, splendid to look at as you come far and short in your fighting. The fame of yours, high as it is, belongs to a runner. Take thought now how to hold fast your town, your citadel by yourself, with those your people who were born in Ilion your family, since no Lycian will go forth now to fight with the Danans for the sake of your city, since after all we got, no gratitude, 
for our everlasting hard struggle against your enemies. How then, O hard-hearted, shall you save a worse man in all your company when you abandon Sarpedon, your, your guest friend? Um, Sarpedon is one of the greatest warriors um, on the Trojan side. How then shall you save a worse man in your company when you've abandoned Sarpedon, your guest friend? He wasn't of the family. He came of his own free will and own companions to be the spoil and prey of the Argives, who was of um, so much use to you, yourself and your city, while he lived. Now, you, now you've got, you have not the spirit to keep the dogs from him, therefore now if any of the Lycian men will obey me, we're going home and the headlong destruction of Troy shall manifest. So Sarpedon is one of the greatest soldiers, and Hector's not coming to his rescue, and more importantly, one of the incentives of what he's doing is he wants Achilles' armor. Patroclus is going to die in a minute. He will abandon, he will take himself out of the fighting just for a moment to get that armor. I don't want to look at that right now, but repeatedly, over and over and over, we're seeing the greatest of the Trojans do things that raise questions about his greatness. There's no question about how great he is. Nobody can question him. He's the greatest of the Trojans. But we're seeing things about his character that come from his attachment to his family. That, that royal line, that bloodline, okay? Now let me stop for a minute. Um, I want to take a look at Patroclus um, very quickly and then leave you all with some questions, okay? Turn to book 15 for just a second, page 328. This is when Hector is pushing the Achaeans to the ships. Okay. About line 715 or so. Hector would not let go of the stern of a ship where he'd caught hold of it, but gripped the stern post in his hands and called to the Trojan. Bring fire and give single voice to the clamor of battle. Now Zeus has given us a day. There's every indication that they're going to defeat the Achaeans at this point. He's going to set fire to the ships. They're going to burn. It looks like the Achaeans are going to lose. Okay. Um, at the bottom of 328, there he stood and waited for them with his pike always beat, always beat off any Trojan who carried persistent fire from the vessel. That's Aias. He kept up a terrible bellowing and urged on the Danans, friends and fighting men of the Danans, henchmen of Ares. Be men now, dear friends, remember your furious valor. Do we think that there are others who stand beside to help us? Here we, here we some, have we some stronger wall that can rescue men from perdition. We have no city built strong with towering towers lying near us within which we could defend ourselves and hold off the host that matches us. We hold position in this plain of the closed armored Trojans, bent back against the sea and far from the land of our fathers. Salvation's light is in our hands, work, not the mercy of battle. I'm gonna come back to this next week, but remember when we did um, Merchant of Venice and we talked about the city. Here's what we've got. We've got Troy and we've got necessity. This is a, um, the trial of necessity, okay? The, the Achaeans have no city to fall back into. Um, 
And at this point, what we're, I think, encouraged to see is the city seems to be a protection. They don't have it, okay? So um, what we're made aware of is what happens, now this is, hold on to this because it's gonna change right away. What we're made aware of is that the city gives people a certain protection. That's why walls are built, okay? And that's reinforced because the Greeks right now look at the security that the city offers them they don't have. So they're forced to a position of absolute necessity. So at this point, the city looks like it's a place of security. Okay? That we can, the city can defend itself against necessity. The Achaeans lack, lack that. They're forced to a position of necessity. Their backs are the wall. They have to fight now. They're not fighting for their families, their provisions, the treasures. Right now they're fighting to survive. Okay? Now hold on to that because it's going to bring back into focus the, 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 the city, which you, if you remember was one of the great things we started with when we talked about fence. I want to come back to it next week. But now I want to look at... Um, Petropolis, just very briefly. Um, remember, Achilles asked Petropolis to see, go outside to find out who was wounded because each one of the heroes, the Greek heroes, was wounded. They're all returned. And at this point, the Achaeans look helpless. Their leaders are gone. They have nothing to defend them. The ships won't. They have no walls. They're not a city. Their backs are against the wall. They're facing the loss of everything. Um, take a look at 16. Very beginning. Page 330, very beginning, 16. So they fought on both sides for the sake of the strong beached, benched, Vessel. Meanwhile, Patroclus came to the shepherd of the people. Achilles stood by him and wept warm tears like a sprung dark running, running that down the face of a rock in passing dim water. Swift-footed, brilliant Achilles looked on him in pity and spoke to him aloud and addressed in winged words, Why then are you crying like some poor little girl? Um, Patroclus answers at the bottom of the page, Son of Peleus, far greatest of the Achaeans, do not be angry, such grief has fallen upon the Achaeans, for all those who were before the bravest in battle are lying up among the ships. Going over, top of the next page, 331. Son of Tydeus, <coughs> strong Diomedes was hit by an arrow, Odysseus, a pipe room, Agamemnon, the king, Eurypylus, they're all wounded. He says, may no such anger take me as this that you cherish, cursed courage. What other man born hereafter shall be disadvantaged unless you beat aside the archives of the shameful destruction. Pitiless, the writer Peleus was never your father. Achilles says to him, middle of the page, give, or he says, give me, remember this is Hector's advice to Patroclus when he sends him back. Now, Patroclus is saying it to Achilles, give me your armor to wear on my shoulders. Achilles says, do it. Um, go on over. Um, let's see, at the bottom of page 331.60. It was not yet in my heart to be angry forever, and yet I have said I would not give over my anger till that time. So part of it is relenting. 
He feels bad that his own companions are dying, but not enough to go back into the war. And he says, go ahead, put on my armor. So do you draw my glorious army around your shoulders, lead the Myrmidons whose delight in battle into fighting is if truly the black cloud of the Trojans has taken position strongly about her ships. But then he goes on to say, go down a few lines, but obey to the end this word I put upon your attention so that you can win for me great honor and glory in the sight of all Danans so that they will bring back to me the lovely girl and give me shining gifts in addition. When you've driven them from your ships, come back, although later the thunder lord of Hera might grant you the winning of glory. You must not set your mind on fighting the Trojans whose delight is in battle without me. So you will diminish my honor. You must not, in the pride and fury of fighting, go on slaughtering the Trojans and lead the way against Ilium. For fear some one of our everlasting gods on Olympus might crush you. What happened now? He goes into battle. Patroclus is going to um, kill Sarpedon. We've already, I mean, I touched on that. There's going to be this battle over Sarpedon because he was one of the greatest warriors on the Trojan side. Um, Patroclus becomes so caught up in rage, in pity, that he ends up going to the wall, doing what Achilles told him not to do after he kills Sarpedon. I, I wish we had time to read the Sarpedon episode, but we don't. Um, Patroclus is warned to give way several times. Apollo warns him. Um, and then Apollo strikes him um, on page 351, about line 75. Three times he charged in with the force of the running war god, screaming a terrible cry, and three times he cut down nine men. But for the fourth time he swept in like something greater than human there. Patroclus, the end of your life was shown. Now, what just happened? Patroclus, the end of your life was shown forth since Phoebus came against you there in the strong encounter dangerously. There had been Patroclus see him as he moved through. Apollo strikes him. It, it, it makes him collapse. Go down a few lines. Um, but now Zeus gave it over to Hector to wear on his head. He loses his helmet. And in his hands was splintered the huge, great, heavy um, spear. Um, at the top of 352, Euphorbus wounds him, and then finally, third man, or third agent, first Apollo, then Euphorbus, and now Patroclus comes in and kills him. Um, down at the bottom of 352, Patroclus, you thought that after devastating our city of stripping from the Trojan women the day of their liberty and dragging them off on the sh you know, fool when in front of them running horses of Hector staying with their swift feet into the fighting, and I, with my own spear, am conspicuous among the fighting programs, I who beat from in the day of necessity. Um, several times, Homer says, you, you Patroclus, you Patroclus, you Patroclus. What's going on with that? Before we, I mean, it's, it's a, it seems like a minor thing, but I don't want to pass it off. Do you remember, what's, what, what voice is that? First person, second person, third person. I, you, he, they. Second person. Homer's addressing Patroclus. He does it again and again in this pen. We don't have time to look at it. We keep saying, you Patroclus, you Patroclus, you. What does that do? 
Seriously, what does that do? When you go from describing objectively what's going on here, and then suddenly you go, you, Helen, or you, you know, you, you, you. And expressing what? Here? Huh? No, no, no. Where's... Um, that human there, Patroclus, the end of your life was shown forth since Phoebus came and did this. He will do that again and again. It's a, it, he's, he's expressing an empathy. It's a sorrow he's feeling for, he keeps saying, you, this is happening, and he's, it's a sadness he's expressing for Patroclus. He will say it again and again. Go through this passage, you guys, from 349, um, and you'll, you'll, you'll see Homer speaking to him in grief. Back, back to 349, book 716. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, for, oh, you're asking me? Yeah. yeah, about from line, say, 710 to, oh. you know, over to 760 or so. Yeah. But he'll do it suddenly, but to the very end of 785, line 785, but as for the fourth time he swept in like something greater, Petro there, Patroclus, the end of your life was shown forth. He's addressing him directly, as if he's real. It's like he's expressing his own, his own sympathy. Yes. He's not done that for any character in the book. So this is an important moment. The poet, the poet breaks from this objective rendering of this battle and identifies with a character who's dying in sorrow. Does it again and again. Um, here, but here's where I wanted to go. Achilles says to Patroclus, don't go to the wall. And then he does, okay? Now go on over just very quickly to um, the point when Achilles gets the news that Patroclus has been killed on page 375, book 18, the very beginning. Achilles gets the news that his dearest friend is, is dead. He says at the beginning of line 18, or I mean chapter 18, May the gods not accomplish vile sorrows upon the hearts of me in the way my mother once made it clear to me when she told me how while I yet lived, the bravest of all the Myrmidons must leave the light of the sun beneath the hands of the Trojans. Surely then the strong son of Menoetes has perished. Unhappy, and yet I told him once he'd beaten the fierce fire. Not, he said, don't go to the wall. On page 376, when Achilles' mother hears the news, she sets up this um, threnody. A threnody is a lamentation. It's a chant of, what's the word? It repeats again and again the same chant. This is on um, page 376, about line 35 or so. He cried out terribly aloud, and the lady, his mother, heard him as she sat in the depths of the sea at the side of her aged father. She cried shrill in turn, and the goddesses gathered about her. All who along the depth of the sea were daughters of Nerex. Now, try to picture the lapping of the sea. You know, again and again, in rhythmic, again and again. Except, don't get in the scientific world where the science says it's just H2O. Get in a world in which the poet thought the gods were everywhere. So they were speaking in everything in nature. So right now what we're hearing in the lapping of the sea is the grieving, this threnody 
of um, Thetis and her nymphs. For Glauca was there, Commodoki and Eleia, Nicaea and Sepo and Chloe and Oxide Haley. It goes on and on and on. It's a threnody. She's weeping because it's a way of saying nature is weeping with this death because she knows now her son will go back into the battle and he's going to die. So the, the link between them has become explicit at this point. Ah me, my sorrow, and the bitterness in this best of childbearing, since I gave birth to a son who is without fault and powerful, conspicuous among heroes, and he shot up like a young tree, and I nurtured him like a tree grown in the pride of the orchard. I sent him away with the curved ships into the land of Ilion to fight with the Trojans, but I shall never again receive him home to his country and into the house of Peleus. Yet will I see him lie, and he looks on the sunlight, he has sorrows, and though I go to him, I can do nothing to help. It shows her going and taking her, his head to her and grieving with her, or him. Um, in the middle of the next page, 377, about line 80, my mother, all these things the Olympians brought to accomplishment, but what pleasure is this to me since my dear companion has perished, Patroclus, whom I love beyond all other companions as well as my own life. I've lost him and Hector, who's killed him, is stripped away the gigantic armor, a wonder to look on and splendid. This is crucial to hold on to, which the gods gave Peleus a glorious present on that day they drove you to the marriage bed of a mortal. Thetis was forced to marry a mortal. I'll go into that next week. And the buy-off, there it is again, the buy-off of that wound was the form of a shield. That shield was given to Achilles, okay, the armor. So that had a divine power in it, okay? It was for her, she gave it to her son. Now Hector has it. He's lost that armor. Thetis is gonna to go to Hephaestus, if you read, you know, she's gonna make up a new set of armor. Something new is about to happen. So just know that with the armor, okay? Now, she knows that because this has happened, Achilles is gonna die. Um, going over, um, on page 380, about line 190 or so. He says to her, how shall I go into the fight if they have my armor? And my beloved mother told me, I must, I must not be armored. Not before with my own eyes I see her come back to me. He can't go in until he has this new armor. She's going to go, this is so important. She's going to go to Hephaestus, the god of craft. He's going to make a new set of armor. Okay? But right now he doesn't have it. She promised she would bring magnificent arms from Hephaestus, nor do I know of another whose glorious armor I could wear unless it were the great shield of Tele Tele Telemonian Ias, but he himself wears it. Iris says, yes, we also know well they hold your armor. Um, she says, go to the ditch, show yourself. So speaking, Iris of the Swift feet went away, but Achilles, the beloved of Zeus, rose up, and Athena swept about his powerful shoulders and fluttering aegis, and she, divine among goddesses, about his head circled a golden cloud and kindled it from a flame far shining. As when a flare goes up into the high air from a city, from an island far away, with enemies fighting about it, who all day long are in the hateful division of Ares, fighting from their own city, but as the sun goes down, signal fires blaze out one after another. Think about this image, light radiates from him so that the glare goes pulsing high for men of neighboring islands to see it. 
in case they might come over in ships and beat off an enemy. So from the head of Achilles, the blade shot into the bright air. He went from the walls to by the ditch. He lets out this shout, and the shout immediately kills dozens of Trojans. There he stood, shouted out, as loud as comes the voice that is screamed out by a trumpet by murderous attackers who besieged the city. So then high and clear went up the voice of Achilles, but the Trojans, when they heard the brazen voice of Achilles, the heart was shaken and all, and the very floating main horses turned their chariots about, since their hearts saw the coming afflictions. The charioteers were dumbfounded as they saw the unwearied, dangerous fire that played about the head of great heart of Helium, blazing and kindled by the golden eye greatest queen. Three times across the ditch, brilliant Achilles gave his cry. Three times the Trojans and their renowned companions were routed. There at that time, 12 of the best men among them perished. Okay, I want to stop, but I've got a couple of questions here because something extraordinary is happening. Either the poet is lying, this is stupid, ridiculous, or something's happening. Now just hold on to this. Remember, Patroclus was overcome by pity, and I, I want everybody to give some serious thought to pity because we've talked about this before. Remember in tragedies, the two tragic emotions that had to be purged were pity and fear because they're both paralyzing emotions. Once you are overcome by pity, it keeps you from acting sometimes. Patroclus goes to his companion and says, let me put pitiless man, let me put on the armor. He puts it on. He goes and, and, and until he gets to the walls, he's fine. But when he gets to the walls and tries to do something, he sh at least from Achilles, he shouldn't have been doing, he's killed, okay? Achilles gets the news, he goes to the ditch, he's without armor, he lets out the shout. There's this image of him with this light emanating from him. He lets out the shout and the Trojans are out. Now before you say that this is all silly and ridiculous, a couple of things here. A change is happening, something new is happening. Achilles has lost his best friend, he didn't know what was gonna happen. Something's gonna happen to Achilles here. We'll, we'll read it next time. What's happened and how do we understand this power? And, and just to, to try to keep this from looking ridiculous, remember in the Eastern Orthodox Church and even in the Western Church, in the Catholic Church, you're often shown saints with a nimbus, a light behind them, as if some power radiates from them. Some of us have had experiences where we encounter a person, you can almost feel the person luminous. Suzanne, we, when I was teaching in Rome, we had an audience an opening, it was, the, it was the day of an audience, he gave an audience. There is no justice in the world. So I, I wanted to go there to this audience and, and I had to go back home because my mom was dying. Suzanne and her mother stayed and her mother um, came up lame and they had to put her in a wheelchair. So on their way to the audience, some of the ushers took Suzanne and her mom into the first row of the assembly when Pope John was giving one of his audiences. <laughs> After he gave his talk, they, they went up, John Paul, they went up on stage, her mother's Protestant to the core, um, and her mom's response was, can we get out of here now? <laughs> Suzanne's description of, of Pope John Paul as he approached them, you say it, you, you say it. Say it, right? I, so there's a semicircle of people, you know, couples getting married, and, you know, clothes, and other people who were disabled, around and speaks to the person and he's like, well, I guess 
speaks to them and says, where are you from? They say it, and he shifts into their language. That's how many languages he spoke. Um, and when I see him from the stage, before I got up on the stage, he just looked so frail. This was late in his past. He was really just very weak. Something's going to happen when they call an assembly again. This is going to be a time assembly. And for the first time since the beginning, Achilles and Agamemnon are going to reconcile. But Achilles is going to do something in that meeting. And Agamemnon is not. And it says something about Achilles. When Achilles goes back into the war, this is so crucial, nobody can touch him. Now remember this. He pulled out of the war and the kinds were dying. I've argued that if he didn't pull out of that war, that war would go on for another There's no reason to believe it would stop. It's just going to go on. He, so he looks bad. He pulls out. His companions die. The kinds die. When he goes back into the war, nobody can touch him. Nobody. He's invulnerable. Why? What happened to him? And how do we understand this nimbus, this nimbus, this light? Um, emanating from him. Um, remember now, we've talked about the city before. We're going to go back to it next week because I remember talking about its beginnings. I want to go back to this again. We've got two peoples, east-west. Troy's going to be destroyed. I'm going to make the argument that it's an enabling city. It's an image of modern America. I believe that to my core. America is an enabling country right now. It's going to be destroyed. So at the beginning, it looked like there was no reason not to think that this wouldn't go on for another nine and a half years. Achilles pulls out. It looks like the most selfish thing to do in the world. Here, late in the book, he and Agamemnon are going to be reconciled. Achilles is going to do something. I want you to pay attention in that chapter when they have that assembly. See, pay close attention to what he does. He's going to go back into the war, and uh, nobody can stop him. Why? What happened? What's going on? This is Achilles. It's the same man who started. He and Hector have been fighting for nine and a half years. Um, we've learned that Aias is uh, Hector's equal in some ways. Um, but we know that he's not because Hector's pushing to the ships. Now, Aias is the one who keeps you know, holding him back. But there are the ships, and they're burning. If Achilles doesn't come back into the war, they're destroyed. So he's showing us, he's showing us a couple of things here. What is the town, the city? The, the city looks like it's a protection against necessity, okay? But it's going to be destroyed pretty directly. That's going to be a comment on the nature of the city. What's wrong with Troy? What's wrong with Hector? 
What's emerging in, in Achilles that in, as Homer presents it shows there's something happening in Western civilization that's unique in its understanding of man. I've been arguing all along that this is a founding work and it's heading, it's pointing towards Christianity. Is there, are there some ways in which Achilles is, is, is giving us an image anticipating Christ? I know that's a, it's like an outrageous claim, but think about those things, okay? Next week, we're going to deal with the end of the year. And I'm giving a quiz to start the class. <laughs> See you guys Thanks. next week. You've got some good reading ahead of you. Do it. It's really, what's happening at this point is sort of extraordinary, okay? Thank you.